0: It's a pleasure to be with you today, and if I counted correctly, this is our 21st and last sermon in our study of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. In verses 12 through 22 of chapter 5, we took a cluster of exhortations, and we did three sermons. Are we good? Yeah, it's got the red, uh, green light. May need to splice this up a little bit at some point. Yeah, I'll just keep going. So, most notably of those three sermons in that cluster of exhortations was the RPG Spiritual Warhead for Kingdom Advancement. Do you remember that one? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and gratitude in all circumstances. And now, in our last sermon of this this letter, we will take the last six verses, and this is where Paul reminds the church that it is God who is going to establish these truths in their hearts. The outline for today is broken down in your handout. You can follow along. Um, We will look at that prayer wish of Paul for the Thessalonian church in verses 23 and 24. uh, His final exhortations in 25 to 27. And then his parting benediction and his closing words in verse 28. So, um, the... Our title is Hope in Our Holification. And just as a reminder, biblical hope is deep confidence. It's not like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. That's our American English version of hope, like wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is deep confidence. I hope the sun comes up tomorrow. That's the the weight of it. And we have great hope and confidence in our holification, you're going, to see, you're going to hear that word a lot. That's another fancy way to say sanctification or progressively becoming more like Jesus, which is the goal for everyone who is a Christian. So let's read the text and then we will pray. So our text for today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28, says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing on the going forth of your word. And as Pastor Eli prayed before, may it come to us with freshness and power and light. And may you accomplish your purposes through the going forth of the teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's powerful name. Amen. So in verse 23, uh, Paul has a prayer wish. You've seen this before. He does this from time to time. The Apostle Paul, he, he, it's a prayer Um, to God but it's spoken to the people that he's talking to so he's saying may God himself the God of peace sanctify you completely so who is going to do the sanctifying who's going to do it Paul's looking to the source of where it needs to come from and he's saying that it is God who is going to produce this It's not man that's going to produce this. It's God who is going to do this. And notice Paul writes, the God of peace himself, the God of peace himself will do it. We spent some time looking at that in other sermons in this letter. But just to say, um, specifically, I think we saw that in verse 13 of chapter 5, where Paul longed for this church to be at peace among themselves. He wanted them to be a church that had unity, had horizontal peace. And they would have that by God working in them and God working these truths out of them in community. There is, of course, the grand truth, the grand truth, that the God of peace has made peace through the newborn king. As we've been singing the last few weeks, hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Have you heard that one before? Yeah, Yeah, you've all heard it. That is basic Christian teaching. And as Augustine famously said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So apart from God, there's no peace. We need God to have peace. And the gospel, the good news of Christ, his perfect life of obedience, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, all of the good news of Christ, that brings vertical peace between man and God, which is the only grounds and foundation for horizontal peace. Now, the last three sermons, especially... We're very heavy on imperatives. And those are the exhortations. Do this. right? And the pastors and the teachers at this church, we always want to ground the imperatives on the foundation of the indicatives. So this is true of you. If you're a Christian, this is your identity. This is true of you. Now do this. It's not just... Go do this. But it's always, because this is who you are, walk this way. This is foundation Christianity 101 stuff. But even Christians who have been in the faith for many years, we have the tendency to hear those imperatives, those challenges, those exhortations, and we say to ourselves, I'm going to do it. I'm challenged and I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna pray more. I'm gonna rejoice more. I'm going to give thanks more. I'm gonna help the weak. I'm gonna be more patient. Good. Be resolved to do that. But don't you ever think you're going to muster up the strength and just get her done. This is not gonna happen willpower religion cannot sustain in the Christian life. You're going to be running on fumes in no time flat. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So after all those imperatives from Paul in chapter 5, what he's doing as he brings the plane in for a landing is he's reminding us, and he's he's reminding the Thessalonians, and by by extension us 2,000 years later, that the God of peace is going to produce it. It is God who is going to sanctify you. Him working within you. God is the ultimate origin of peace. And He will bring peace in that sanctifying process. But notice how Paul wants it to get done. What does it say? His prayer wish is that they would become fully sanctified, not partially sanctified. He doesn't just ask that certain parts of these people would become sanctified, set apart as holy for God's use. He prays that God would leave nothing untouched and he would sanctify them. Look at the adverb, completely. Completely. Or as we've said in other sermons, to holify That's what sanctify means, to make holy. He's holifying them completely. And that's what I think spirit, soul, and body mean here. Some of you are familiar with the whole trichotomy, dichotomy, controversy debate. I'm not going to bring you into the whole controversy like I did with prophecy. Do you remember that? We kind of jumped in the deep end with prophecy. What is prophecy? New Testament prophecy. How it's different than Old Testament prophecy. And we looked at that. But basically, this verse is where the trichotomist, You hear that word tri, or or, or uh, dichotomy too. Um, that this is the verse where the trichotomists point to man, the nature of man having three parts. So man has a spirit, man has a soul, and man has a body. Where our human being is made up of three parts. That's called trichotomy. Dichotomy two, you hear the die two uh, holds that man has two basic parts. There's a physical part and a spiritual part, and they would hold that soul and spirit are basically interchangeable throughout Scripture. But the trichotomists point to this verse almost exclusively as Exhibit A that you have three parts. Now the trichotomists they would differentiate the soul is different than the spirit. And there's very important practical implications for how that plays out for the trichotomists. Um, but I'm not going to settle that controversy today, but I will say most of the reform world or most of the evangelical reform stream that this church flows within would be on the dichotomy side, that we're, we're body and we're spirit, and spirit and soul are interchangeable. So anyhow... Um, what we, can, what we can say is that everything we are is included in these words. I don't think Paul's trying to make a deep theological statement about human nature here. It's more like Paul is using body, soul, and spirit to say your whole self. Everything you are. It's kind of like the, that, that phrase... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't become quadtonomists all of a sudden. You know. it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's kind of that kind of a reference. Everything you are, from the inside to the outside, may you be sanctified completely. Your thoughts, your words, your emotions, your attitudes, your actions, everything that you are, every part of your being, completely Holified. So when you're speaking about God sanctifying you completely, your whole spirit, soul, and body being kept blameless, Paul is talking about an entire transformation. He's talking about reformation, restoration, renewal of who you are as a new person that God overhauled. One of my favorite things about sports is when a team has a complete turnaround. Those are always great stories. And I don't care what the sport is, uh, when a new coach takes over a losing team and they go from a losing team to a winning team. They were 2-10 one year, the next year they're 10-2. Like, how did that happen? Well, there's a transformation of the culture. And that word culture is a great word. It comes from cultists. You hear that word cult in there? Oh, they're a cult. But basically culture, in its most foundational form, is its religion, its beliefs manifested. It's its religion externalized. It's the beliefs and religion brought to life. And to change a culture of a team, the coaches need to not only teach how to play offense and defense and the X's and O's and the schemes of what they're trying to accomplish. But the coaches need to teach how to practice. The coaches need to teach how to lift weights, how to go to class, how to think about winning, how to have a winning mindset and have the right concept of identity. It's a complete overhaul of the culture and the heart and the belief system of the team. Not leaving anything disconnected from the vision and the mission and the values. That's when you see turnaround. When the culture, the heart is changed on a team or a program. And we love those sports stories, don't we? We love when there's the, you know, from worst to first. We love that. Why do we love it? Why do we love any stories? We love those stories because that is a small picture of the much greater story of what God is doing in the world. Remember, history is his story, right? And what God is doing in the world and in individual people and families and in churches is that like the grand picture of the world, what God is doing, his story, is he's renewing all things. He's he's Bringing all thi- everything that got messed up, he's making all things new. And God doesn't leave any part of us untouched if we're His. God doesn't say, well, uh, you know, that area can stay the same. I'll just leave you there. I'll just leave you where you are. Now, He's very patient, but He doesn't just wink and nod and approve at what is unholy in His people. He disciplines those whom He loves. Hebrews 12 reminds us. And it's Paul's longing and prayer that the church be transformed and changed to the image of Christ. The whole idea is that there's a renovation or a restoration or a renewal process that touches every part of your life. And every one of you in this room is in this process if you're a Christian. And we're making our way through this process so Paul Is telling them, I'm longing for this. I'm praying, I'm pray wishing this to be true of this church. And Paul wants them to press on and continue strong in their sanctification. We saw that in chapter 4, verse 1. He longs for these people to become like Christ. And he knows that the only way that that's going to happen is for God to be working in them, for God to be active, for the Holy Spirit that indwells them continually giving them the ability to walk this out. And he's emphatic that God is going to do it. He's going to do it wholly and completely, and there's a goal in sight. And this is one of the the themes, according to most of the commentators, they would say that the theme of this letter is this, very simply, maybe said a little differently here and there, but the theme of this letter is walking worthy in light of his coming. In light of Christ's coming, we're called to walk worthy. I've mentioned it a few times over these sermons, but every chapter of this letter includes a reference to the return of Christ. The whole thought pattern in this letter for Paul is that the church would live in light of the second coming of Jesus. Remember, Jesus came, down payment, did the job, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for sin, to redeem a people and redeem the world, and he rose from the dead to prove he has the power of life and death, went to heaven, and he's, I'm coming back to wrap it all up. And that will happen in the future. And the pattern here is that we would live in light of the second coming of Christ. And that is a high standard of action, a high standard of attitude, and our life altitude. Where should we be living? Down in the in the weeds of the details of, oh, I got this, I got a bill to pay. Those are, that's life, yes. You got to do those things. But is that where we're really living? We, we're called to live up. For Paul, his expectation was that when Christ returns, the church would be blameless. And when Christ comes back, we would be found holy and seeking after holiness He wants us to look at Christ returning and he wants us to be encouraged and push forward and to persevere. So Paul is saying, I want God to be at work in you that when he returns, you would be found blameless. And if you're in Christ, that's what's going to be true of you. It won't be true that you will be found with blame if you're in Christ. That's the comfort here. Paul's prayer is to give comfort to the believer that when he returns, the sanctifying process has taken deep root in your life. But his prayer continues. Look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. Do what? One of my favorite chapters in all the Old Testament is Isaiah 46. You know this chapter where God says he will accomplish whatever he decides to accomplish. Nothing is getting in God's way? Come on, he's God. But that's not the context here in 1st Thessalonians 5. The context is not God will do whatever he wants, nothing's getting in his way. The context here is your salvation. Thessalonians Christian You're here in Wayne today, at Bread of Life Fellowship, Christian service. What's what will God do? What is God gonna do? Well, He will surely do it. Do what? He will bring about His purposes to save you. To the end that's what he's going to do there's a basis in root and foundation for assurance you're not going to do it he will surely do it and it's that god is the one who is at work in you that's the emphasis god is the one who will finish the work god will not leave you where you are you can bank on that if you're his he's not going to leave you out there so this text is a great assurance and confidence to believers 1990s John Piper said this, assurance doesn't come from making holiness optional. Assurance comes from knowing God is faithful. That's rich, isn't it? Assurance comes from knowing God is faithful. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, is filled with so many ups and downs, struggles and trials and difficulties. That's life in a fallen world. There's all kinds of mess. And we could trust the fact that God is faithful. He's working out his sanctifying purposes in your life. He will surely do it. Amen? Amen? 90s John Piper again. I hope you begin, quote, I hope you begin to feel what this means for the foundation of your assurance. It means that every successive step of your salvation is rooted in all of the steps that have gone before. Your sanctification is rooted in your call and guaranteed by your call. Your call is... Rooted in the death of Christ for sinners. The death of Christ is rooted in predestination and predestination rooted in election. Once you are caught up in this great objective of God-wrought salvation, you know yourself loved with an omnipotent, everlasting, electing, predestinating, atoning, calling, sanctifying, saving love. And you should sing, God is faithful. He will do it. End quote. I think you heard the echoing of that great Golden chain of redemption from Romans 8:30. There, didn't you hear that? All verbs that God does, it's a sure thing. If you're in Christ, He will finish the work that He began in you, and He will not leave you where you are. Okay, so we heard it. David, you beat that horse to death. God is going to make it happen, but where do I fit in? You may be thinking, I'm not one of these let go and let God people. I need to do my part, right? Even if it's like 0.01%. I gotta do, I, I gotta play a part here somehow, right? Don't we believe in like accountability and like perseverance? Like, come on, like I'm not a robot. I'm involved in sanctification, right? Well, what part of God will do it? Don't you seem to understand? Yeah but I'm, I'm hearing all the yeah buts. I used to have a coach, he used to say, like, I don't want to hear your yeah buts. I don't want to hear the yeah buts. Just do what I'm telling you. Yeah, but Philippians 2:12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? So Paul, here you tell us to work out our salvation, but I thought it was God who does it and will do it. Which is it? And Paul says, would you just keep reading, please? Just one verse. Just keep going. Most of the stuff in the Bible that's a little prickly or hard to understand if you just keep reading the next verse or verses, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Listen to what verse 13 says. Okay, Paul, we'll do it. We'll keep reading. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, so there's a tension there. Why didn't you say so? Yes. And the point of the tension is to keep us from self-righteous moralism and pride. That's why there's a tension. So we don't think we could just ever do it on our own. For earlier in that same letter, Philippians 1.6, the famous 1.6, this is Paul, same author, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. We need to get this basic fundamental truth and spiritual, spiritual reality settled deep in our core. And I know for, for the brothers and sisters who are here week after week, you, you, you've heard this. But we need to be reminded of this. This is basic stuff you need to be reminded of. We are completely dependent on God. And that should bring us to a place of humility and a posture of dependence. I love how Jerry Bridges puts it in his book, The Disciplines of Grace. He says this, quote, The Christian life is one of disciplined dependence and dependent discipline. Sanctification different than regeneration and and what God does in... uh, in, in justifying us that's a that's a monergistic monergistic act one work mono ergon one work god's work he justifies he regenerates but but sanctification or holification is a beautiful divine human synergy that god oversees to completion and we can have great confidence because it is God who is active in you. It is not just you making your list and doing all the things and saying, hey, I got, hey, I got this. I got this. I'm good. No, get your list. Get disciplined. But you need to have dependent discipline and disciplined dependence. For what's going to save you is only Christ. That's what. That's the only, the object of our faith is Christ. Only he can save. And the work of Christ on our behalf is what saves. And, and that's the only thing that's going to conform you to the image of Christ. And he is going to do that if you are his. And that's our hope. He's doing it. But I'm not going to just... Let go and let God and just sit back and kick my feet up and not be disciplined? No, that's not the way it works. John Murray captured it so beautifully. I'm going to quote him here. I'm not even going to try to paraphrase this or anything. It's so good. In his book from 1955 called Redemption Accomplished and Defined, he says this, quote, It is imperative that we understand our complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. It is not a relationship of cooperation as if God does his part and we did ours, so both would create a required result. God works in us and we also work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. The more persistently active we are in working, listen to this, the more persistently we are, um, the more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all of the energizing grace and power is of God. Isn't that rich? Because God is in you, compelling you and propelling you and impelling you, therefore you work. And all the working on our part is the effect of God's working in us. It's all the effect of God working in your heart, owning your life, taking hold of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, all that you are. And the more you work, the more reality sinks in that it is God who is working in you. We need to get that deep down in our core. That it's not dependent, our salvation is not dependent on our feeble grip on God but His strong grip on us. I'm not sure who said it, but it sounds like something on a t-shirt or a bookmark or something. But it's true. That it's about not our little grip, it's His vice vice grip grasp around you and His love for you. He'll never let you go if you're in Christ. Now, some of you may feel you're going through this Christian life. Here we are at the end of the year. You're like, oh, I feel like such a failure as a Christian. I have a word for you. Tell your doubts to leave. Why? Because God is faithful. But I don't feel like, look to Christ! That's the admonition today. You know the correct Sunday school answer when we do bold kids downstairs? or Whenever you're in a Sunday school class, kids... Whenever you're in a Sunday school class and the, and the teacher asks the question, when in doubt, you weren't paying attention, just say, No, more specifically, Jesus. Just say, Jesus, that's the answer to 98% of the problems. So, in the same way, as Christians, we're counseling each other, going through life's up and downs, and, and trials, and tribs, and all the stuff that goes on, and we're doubting. And, and we need to remind each other, repent and believe the gospel. Look to Christ. Just that. Well, repent, turn from, turn to, believe, grasp, rest, hold the gospel, the good news of Christ, and then keep looking to Him. That's it. That's what, that If you just do nothing else with each other in the body life working, do that. And what a blessed assurance to know that God will complete that work in us. For our God is for us. He's faithful, completely dependable and reliable to complete what he started. As we're going to sing later, for who could stand against us if our God is for us? So in light of those great truths, Paul has some final exhortations to the church. We'll go through these a little faster. Um, The bulk of this message is is the core of that that prayer. But I I wanted to hit on these exhortations as well. I think there's some good good things we could tease out here. Verses 25 through 27. Um, We'll take each one briefly. Look at verse 25. Paul writes, Brothers, pray for us. The Apostle Paul asks for prayer. Throughout the letter, he has told them how he's prayed for them. But now he implores them to pray for him. He doesn't tell them what to pray for. He just asks, Brothers, pray for us. That's Paul, Silas, and Timothy, right? So here's the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament by the Spirit's moving in him. And he knows his own humanity and need for prayer. He knows he is upheld by God and dependent upon God. So much, he's like, Brothers, pray. So, in just that one statement, Paul brings out the evidence of his dependence on Christ in everything. So after Paul instructs them, he tells them, I need you to pray for me. He gives them all, he gives them the instruction, and he I, I need you to pray for me. And there's deep humility in that. Can you hear that? There's deep humility. And we should long for the other brethren in our church to pray for us. God works through prayer. We spent the whole section in one of the sermons about prayer and pray um, without ceasing remember that but it's a mystery how prayer works we talk and ask and speak to god and pray for what we think is best and then god accomplishes his purposes through prayer and he decided to accomplish what he is his ends are um, through his people praying so what a privilege to be about his business and be a part of the process and pray for his will to be done. I saw a t-shirt the other day. And as you know, the, the theology on most Christian t-shirts is, I would say, substandard. At, suspect at best. Uh, but this was a good one. Um, it was a picture of a knight kneeling down with his helmet and his sword. And his head was down. And it said this. It said, the devil saw me with my head down and thought he had won. Until I said amen, <laughs> we stand strongest and tallest on our knees. I think that was Bunyan, a John Bunyan, quote, but somehow it gets attributed to Charles Stanley or uh, Beth Moore somehow. That's we live in a time when most Christians in America think like the church started in 1987. It's just it's terrible. But Bunyan, the Puritans, they're just like new kids on the block compared to. The early church fathers. Now, I will say this. Many of you routinely pray for the elders, for the pastors of this church. Remember the same Greek word for overseer, pastor, elder. Um, and in, in our Baptist circles, we, you know, we use them interchangeably. But you pray for our elders and our pastors. And I could take the liberty to speak for them all when I say, don't stop. Keep praying. The more the better. And pray for the entire prayer list. That's why we have a prayer list. So you can go name by name and have God's people pray for each other. That's normal. Even people you don't regularly speak to, pray for them. And what happens is the more you pray for them, the, more, the stronger the fellowship becomes. That's how it works. And it's not selfish to ask for prayers. At the heart of prayer is the recognition of neediness. It's the recognition of inability. Prayer recognizes and embraces the posture of need before the brothers and sisters and before God. Vintage John Piper again. And I I say that, 90s John Piper, vintage John Piper. John Piper, for for many of you know, what a blessing in the lives of many of you in this church there was a time I cut my teeth on so much John Piper. Um, in, in recent years, there's been some wobbly, woke, wokey, McWoke face stuff where, um, for whatever reason, um, he, adopted a, um, he adopted a daughter and he got into a lot of this race stuff and I'm like, why get off into the Marxist playbook? The Maoist playbook of color? Like, this is nothing, we're the church. And all-racial reconciliation... Like, I, I was disappointed with some of that stuff, and I don't know where he is, but I have the utmost respect for him. But as Christians, like, God made Adam and Eve. We're all from Adam and Eve. And we don't get caught up in the Marxist stuff. Right? So I say that when I say vintage John Piper, 90s John Piper, I just try to differentiate between some of the recent stuff. Maybe I didn't need to do that aside. Maybe I did, but... Um, John Piper is a, a godly man, and I've been blessed mightily. But John Piper said about prayer, he said, prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as wealthy. And it's always a tell. If you've ever been in a prayer meeting, and, and, some, and, and people are going around, and you're, or Bible study, and someone's like, hey, can we pray for you? And they're like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. person doesn't get it. Ask for prayer. Paul asked for prayer. Chapter 5 um, really lays out a beautiful gospel community that's based on knowing each other well, um, knowing each other well enough so that you can pray for each other, uh, where we can ask each other, hey, I need prayer. Why? Because I need it. <laughs> um, we need each other to go before God on our behalf, and you don't need to be reminded about it, but I, I'll re- do it anyway. Our pastors and our Pastors' families need prayer, need to be in our daily prayers, because the enemy is after them especially. And then Paul goes on to show his great affection for the church in verse 26. He says this, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss, a holy smooch. Seems a little awkward, especially for you uh, non-Latin or uh, Spanish or non-Mediterranean, um, for those of you who don't have a, a happy vowel at the end of your last name, um, maybe you're, you, you're, you're a little more used to giving a, 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 little, a little kiss. But it's a command. Greet each other with a holy kiss. And I, I struggle with this over the last month or so. Um, I think four to five times in the New Testament we're told to greet each other with a holy kiss. Peter, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Peter calls it a kiss of love. It's described as a holy kiss. This is the same root word that's used in verse 23 for sanctified. And so it's not just any old kiss. Okay, uh, This is a special gesture within a Christian family. But it's a kiss. And the commentators are all in agreement that there's a lot of that they don't agree on. But one thing they do agree on is that 2,000 years ago, in the Greek culture that this came to, no one would have thought of this as a romantic kiss. That's one thing they can agree on. Because a kiss in that culture, it was a sign of respect. It was a sign of honor. It was a sign of friendship. They would even start their, their like political meetings with a kiss. And it was done on the hand sometimes, on the forehead, or on the cheek. So something like a handshake in our culture um, showing peace and unity. So it's what Paul's kind of saying is greet each other with a fellowship kiss on the forehead, cheek, or hand. That's how you know generally I've kind of seen the commentators kind of align. Now, what I don't like, and I want to just caution us, is there are some people who are quick to say, hey, this is a cultural thing. This is a hundred percent. If there ever was a cultural thing in the Bible, this is it. You know, this is 21st century. America. We don't kiss people around here. You know. Well, is that a good reason to not do something that the church universal, north, east, south, and west, for centuries, like 13 centuries, they would kiss each other? Do we just go, eh? Nah, I'm American. I'm Dutch. You know, we don't do that. Is the culture today the standard? of what constitutes a culture of love in the context of the church? Anything that's unusual or weird or funny, it makes me feel a little funny to kiss people. Um, I'm not going to do it. Well, culture doesn't define the standard. If so, then throw out baptism and throw out the Lord's Supper. Those are kooky and weird. People that don't aren't Christians, they come in here, what are you guys doing? Eating cracker and juice? or dunking somebody back here? You know, like, what are you doing? Uh, that's weird. But we're told to do it. So I don't like to say, oh, that was for then. It was a cultural thing. It just means love each other. Maybe. I think it's a slippery slope when you just say, "Ah, oh, it's culture. Oh, that's, oh, that was for the women then. You know, we don't do that now. I, I want to embrace. I don't want to just dismiss things, but I do think Paul's main heart of the point was: we're a family, and families show affection to each other. We're a Christian family, amen. What does that look like? I don't know. Um, and it does say all the brothers, so uh, there's no partiality here. If you're in the family of God, we're to greet your brother and sister in the family of God with a holy Christian greeting in Christ. I like how John Stott said it in his commentary, quote, Christians should greet each other and the greeting should be strong, warm, and personal with a culturally appropriate sign. End quote. So back then it was appropriate to use the kiss, but maybe not in other cultures. I don't, I, handshakes, hugs. We want brotherly, sisterly love in fellowship. So I don't know exactly how this looks, to be honest, in repentance and honesty. I, I don't know what this is supposed to look like now. Um, and we need wisdom from God to develop a biblical counterculture family of holified love, right? The, this world is so saturated in a, in a warped, messed up view of that whole arena. So like how countercultural would we be if we were like, no, no, we're a family. We show love and kindness to each other. Big old hug or kiss on the hand or head or what? I don't know. But I'm just saying there's something powerful there. And I want to, we want to step into that. In verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So I got the strong impression by that, that like, this was a real letter. Like Paul wrote it and he wanted them to know what he was writing about. It wasn't just like, you know, some non-important thing that somebody dug up here pass this along to them you know this looks good you know you know he wrote a real personal to real personal letter to real people from a real person and it's a serious tone in the in the in the original this is serious i put you under oath it's like law language you get to read this to everybody I have some important things to say here now everyone needs to hear it everyone gets a holy kiss and everyone the even the ones that can't read you need to make sure they hear this because if they're going to be a gospel community and rooted in the grace of god there are areas that need to be worked out in holification and they're not done yet so read this letter now in the first chapter he tells them that they're a great example, if you remember that. He's like, you, you, the work of your church has gone out to all of Macedonia. They all know about you guys. This, the work of this church has is, is, is kind of gone out. That you guys are faithful. They're a young church. But still, they're a work in progress. Now, let me ask you. Do we recognize that about our church? That we're a work in progress? Bread of life is a work in progress and in the process of sanctification as a church and as individuals. We're still growing in need of hearing these truths, just like the church then did 2,000 years ago. We need to hear this. That's why we come on Sunday, to hear the word. Hear the word preached, hear the word read, hear the word sung, to celebrate the gospel in the Lord's table. So we should pattern ourselves after these truths and read and meditate. And then we would grow in these ways and be encouraged to grow more in these ways. And lastly, Paul closes in verse 28. In the same way he started, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So if you remember back in chapter one, he said grace and peace to you in Christ. And I love that Paul, he starts with grace and he ends with grace because he knows that grace is what we're all rooted in. I remember taking a class back at Virginia Tech called Pauline Letters as an elective. Pauline Letters. Pagan place with a pagan prof. But I did it. And this is academia, if you know what I mean. So this is, you study the letters of Paul in a dry, sophisticated, cerebral sense. And the assignments were like use Paul's standard letter-writing formula and construct a letter to a friend. Like, that was one of the, well, it's not a formula. Like, hey, we're going to start with grace and we're going to end with grace and we're going to have a couple of verbs. Like, that's not how Paul did it. Newsflash, Paul does that because grace is the heart of the Gospel and grace is the heart of God. And we belong and are buffered and brought along every step of the way by grace. Undeserved favor and blessing from God. And as the hymn says so famously, grace has brought me safe this far and grace will lead me home. John Stott again, he put it beautifully in his commentary. If a local church is to become a gospel church, it must not only receive the gospel and pass it on, but also embody it in a community, living a life of mutual love. Nothing but the grace of Christ can accomplish that. Quote. So Paul, longing for all these things to be true of this church, asked that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with him. And it's not just an empty saying, a throwaway, it's really his heart, which is rooted on the gospel and what he wants for this church. So as we come to a close, uh, we can wrap up this section by saying, because he loved you, because he died for you, he's not done with you. And you have been given another year by God's grace to grow and develop and make progress to become who you are in Christ. And as we close this series in 1 Thessalonians, and bring this year to a close as well, I think it's good to ask. whenever you bring a book to an end, and it ends up being, as um, Pastor Eli was mentioning to me before the series, like it kind of is nice. we finish the book of First Thessalonians, and we finish the year, right together. Um, have we grown by hearing this word? Have we longed that this would be what identifies us? What impact has First Thessalonians had? over the 21 sermons that I've, by the grace of God, been privileged to bring to you over the last three or four years. Has the Lord been at work in this fellowship, and have we grown in our love for Christ and others? Have we become more like this church in in Thessalonica that others would say that we're an example in our community? Are we praying these truths that they would be true of us? individually and as a church? And are we encouraging the faint-hearted and admonishing the idle and loving the weak and patient with all? And are we doing that more and more as we grow? Are we a church that abounds in love for one another? Are we growing in that love and in Christ's love? Or are we content with where we are? Do you want to be sanctified more and more as the people of God? Do we desire to be transformed knowing that we need these things for our good and for God's glory? I pray that we would be a people that would endeavor these things and to be a community rooted in the gospel and we would abound in God's grace and that grace would be increasingly known to us individually and to us as a church. Amen. Brother Rob is going to lead us in a uh, prayer of response to what we just heard from God's Word in 1 Thessalonians 5. So, Brother Rob. Praise you Lord. Lord, praise you for your Word.